I want uh, this uh, um, morning uh, to speak once again about the significance of Jerusalem, the uh, biblical uh, significance of Jerusalem. And I want to uh, be much more specific than I was able to be on uh, Wednesday. I imagine that uh, on Monday evening at Sultan's Pool, I imagine most of you were there. Were you, can I just see how many of you were there? Yes. Well, now in that time, we had to be a little more um, general uh, in what we had to say, but I would like to be a, a good deal more specific in this seminar. Um, and I particularly, I want to talk about the Jewish connection uh, to Jerusalem. I would like you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 and 37. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 6. Psalm 137 from verse 1 to verse 6. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst thereof we hanged up our hearts. For there they that led us captive required of us songs, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I remember thee not, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Uh, Jerusalem has been an attraction for many peoples through the long centuries of mankind's story. It has been an attraction for the Assyrian, for the Egyptian, for the Babylonian, for the Persian, for the Greek, for the Roman, for the British, and of course, for the Arabs. For the Christian and the Muslim, it has had a religious attraction to a certain extent. That was not the attraction for Assyria, or Babylon, or Egypt, or Persia, or Greece, or Rome. There, the attraction of Jerusalem to them was as a conquest 
one more city uh, to add, as it were, uh, to the long uh, uh, list of conquered cities uh, in the Middle East. One more area and people to bring under their sovereignty and domain. For the Christian and the Muslim, uh, the city has had an, a religious attraction. But it is a very interesting fact that the Quran does not mention Jerusalem once by name. The Bible mentions Jerusalem over 600 times by name. And then, of course, you have other names given to it. Sometimes it's just called the city of God. Sometimes it is called Zion. But uh, Jerusalem itself is mentioned over 600 times. The Muslim, the attraction of Jerusalem to Islam is that Jerusalem is the place where the Muslim believes Muhammad ascended into heaven on his faithful steed, his white steed, Burak. And for this reason, it is the third most holy place in Islam. In fact, um, the most holy place in Islam is Mecca. And the second most holy place is Medina. And then, of course, the Shiites have a third most holy place in Persia, in Iran. So for some areas of Islam, Jerusalem is the fourth. And for others, the Sunni, it is the third most holy place. But it is not the most holy place. Actually, in the beginning of Islam, they used to turn towards Jerusalem to pray. But after the death of Muhammad and um, uh, the uh, growth of Islam, they turned towards Mecca and especially to the Kaaba stone in Mecca, that great black meteorite which was the center of animist and occult worship long before Islam came on the scene. Now, it is interesting because uh, for those of you who know anything about the Middle East and anything about our country here, uh, you, if you have been in any mosque, if you have dared to go in, I know some Christians will not even go into some of these places, but if you have been in the mosque of Omar on the uh, Temple Mount or the mosque of El-Aqsa on the Temple Mount, you will notice a niche in the wall. And it is called in Arabic a mihrab. This is the sign for all Muslims where you turn for prayer. And so you will find in every mosque in Jerusalem, instead of having the mihrab towards the Temple Mount, it is, point, it is um, in the direction of the south-east to Mecca. 
this more eloquently than anything else is the evidence that Jerusalem is not the priority in one sense in Islamic eyes. But we have to also say that although the Christians have uh, thought very highly uh, of Jerusalem, they also uh, do not give it priority. Uh, the Christian has an affection for Jerusalem as the place where Jesus died, where Jesus was buried, and where Jesus rose and ascended to heaven. But for a vast part of the Christian world, Rome is the priority. Rome is called the eternal city by a large section of Christendom. Uh, the only problem I always feel with those who have this view is that the Messiah does not come to Rome on his return, but to Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, they believe that um, um, Rome is the center, that God transferred the headquarters from Jerusalem to Rome because of the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, by the Jewish people. There is another very large section of Christendom that looks to Constantinople, or did in the past, as its center. That is the great Orthodox Church, and many of its different um, uh, factions within it. They look to what we now call Istanbul in Turkey, Constantinople. That was the capital of the Christian world even before Rome. There are, of course, other Christians who have made their headquarters in Geneva, where the World Council of Churches <coughs> has its um, offices uh, <coughs> and has its uh, centralized administration. Well, uh, what can we say to all of this? We can only say that Jerusalem has got an attraction for the Muslim. That is why the call is going out more and more insistently, especially from the leaders of the Islamic Revolution, and in particular the Ayatollah Khomeini, that there should be a jihad, a holy war, to liberate Jerusalem. The Ayatollah Khomeini has been absolutely truthful and absolutely straight and um, in his own way absolutely faithful for the last 40 years. Before there was even a Jewish state created, the Ayatollah Khomeini was calling upon Muslims to mobilize in order that Jerusalem should not fall into Jewish hands. When the state was cre recreated on the 14th of May, 1948, Khomeini said that there must come a day when the Muslim masses would have to go to war 
to liberate Jerusalem and liquidate this newborn Jewish state. When the Shah of Iran, the late Shah of Iran, exiled the Ayatollah Khomeini to Iraq, he repeatedly said in Iraq that the Muslim masses would have to give their energies, their money, their time, their everything to one objective, the liberation of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. When the present president of Iraq expelled Khomeini, and that is the cause for this four-year savage war between Iran and Iraq, when he expelled Khomeini as an agitator and as a problem maker, and Ayatollah Khomeini fell into the loving arms of France and went to Paris, he repeatedly from Paris organized the Islamic Revolution that would finally overthrow the Shah of Iran and lead in the end to this war with Iraq. And his rallying call has never been the execution of President Hussein of Iraq, but the liberation of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. So we cannot say that Jerusalem has no attraction for the Muslim. It is a rallying point. It is a war cry. Now, and wherever the Islamic revival is coming, anywhere in the world, it has become, the word Jerusalem, has become for the Muslim masses, the great rallying cry, the great catalyst for excitement. Now, we have to say that for the Christian it is true that they have some affection for this city, but um, for the most part, the World Council of Churches and certainly the Vatican would like to see Jerusalem internationalized. In other words, they would like to see it like another Vatican. Um, the Vatican would rather like it to be under the Vatican's care. That was the suggestion they made but they have never recognized the state of Israel and to this day still refuse to recognize the state of Israel. Now having said that, I want to move on. It is true that Jerusalem, whilst it is not the priority for the Muslim and for the Christian, uh, has got a very real attraction for them. When it comes to the Jewish people, there is no other city in the whole universe that holds any position with or beside Jerusalem. For the Jew, there is no other 
city. We read that Psalm 137. It goes right back to the exile to Babylon. We read how they said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? For them, Zion or Jeru and Jerusalem represented the whole nation represented the whole land, represented the whole territory. It was as if the one city, Jerusalem, symbolized the significance of the calling of the Jewish people, the uniqueness of the Jewish people, and the destiny of the Jewish people. It is a very interesting fact that even the most assimilated Jew finds somewhere deep down within him some strange feeling about Jerusalem. I remember the words of Elchanan Levinsky. In the very name of Jerusalem, there lies concealed something powerful unknown and mysterious that draws the Jewish heart. I must just tell you, if you will pardon me, my own personal experience. When I was 17 or 18, I lived for three years in Egypt. At that time, neither myself nor my sister really knew that we were Jewish. We only knew that the Jewish community in uh, the town in which we lived were always from childhood trying to help us, trying to look after us, trying to do everything for us. And mother to protect us because of the Nazis. I lost my father and a whole of uh, about 55 members of that side of the family in the Holocaust in Auschwitz. Um, because uh, mother was so afraid of the Nazis coming to Britain and um, had made a pact with my father to preserve us uh, from them, um, she would always push off these Jewish people, even to the point of being rude to them. And sometimes we heard her sort of telling them off and telling them not to have anything to do with us and so on and so forth. But it was a strange thing. I remember on one occasion when I was on my way to Port Said and I stopped at uh, Kantara and someone pointed the railway track. This was in 1950, two years after the war, uh, the War of Independence. They pointed out the railway track. They said, do you know where that railway track goes? And I saw this rusting old single line going out into the desert nowhere. They said, it goes to Jerusalem. And I had the most extraordinary kind of almost physical feeling as if I was being pulled up and out. And I remember looking into nowhere, into that, what I consider northern Sinai, to be the most uninteresting part of the wilderness of Sinai. Um, I looked out into that um, 
awful, dreary wilderness and thought to myself what is happening to me. It is very strange, this, uh, of course at that time I had no idea I would end up living in Jerusalem. But, uh, you know, Jerusalem has this, uh, even to the most assimilated Jew, uh, has this uh, extraordinary and uh, mysterious pull. For 3,000 years, the Jew has had a continuous and enduring relationship uh, with Jerusalem. If it has not always been physical, it has always been spiritual. Even when the Jewish people have been exiled uh, into the ends of the earth, they have never forgotten Jerusalem. I don't know how much you know about Jewish custom, but it is a quite extraordinary thing that um, the Jewish people will pray three times a day, the Orthodox and observant Jew, will pray three times a day, and in that three times, at some point, will turn toward Jerusalem and pray toward Jerusalem. Remembering the destruction of Jerusalem, appealing to God to rebuild the city and to bring back the dispersed people back home. Two of the major festivals of the year, uh, Pesach, Passover, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, end with those words that I suppose everyone here knows next year in Jerusalem. For some 2,000 years, the Jewish people have said at the end of those feasts, next year in Jerusalem, but it has never come to pass. For three times a day, all observant Jews have turned towards Jerusalem wherever they have been in the whole world, as far away as Chile or Argentina or Siberia or Alaska or Afghanistan or Kurdistan or in Africa or New Zealand and have prayed for Jerusalem. It is, I think, a most amazing thing. Then again, I find it, without wanting to be funny, I find it almost funny at times that all the figures of uh, uh, poetic figures, if you like, in Jewish thought have all been to do with this land. For instance, they have had special prayers for the grape harvest and for the olive harvest. When they live in Alaska, there is no such thing as olives or grapes, yet still they have the special prayers for the grape harvest and for the olives. Or you talk about the pomegranate. Who has ever seen a pomegranate in some parts of the earth? 
Now, I'm not saying for those of you from South Africa and some other places, you will, and in today, when things are transported and, in fact, uh, um, uh, are now an economic uh, 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 viability, um, you may not realize just how remarkable it was, but for 2,000 years, Jews have talked about the palm tree when they've never seen a palm tree and have talked about all the various things and prayed for the best. And the most amazing thing of all is this Sukkot feast, where all Jews should have their main meals in the sukkah, in the booth. It doesn't matter where they live. They're excused, of course, because of the wickedness of the northern climes. When it's cold and wet, you don't have to have your meal in the sukkah. But I find it extraordinary, having been brought up in Britain, where it rains for at least 300 of the 365 days of the year, that at the end of the su of sukkah, in every synagogue in Britain, the Jews will stand and implore the Lord to pour out rain upon the dry land when all around it may have been raining for months on end. This is how God burnt into the Jewish heart the whole question of this land which he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their seed forever. Even when they were far away in the far corners of the earth, they still prayed as if they were in this land just as if the exile had never taken place. Now it is Jerusalem which has become the focal point of all these longings, of all this prayer, of all this anguish, of all this sense of loss. The exile of the Jewish people, both exiles, but particularly this last exile of 1,800 years, has had a traumatic effect upon Jewish thought. The rabbis spent not just a few hours, but spent years and years and years of their lives meditating, reflecting, investigating, why has there been such an exile? What did the Jewish people do to warrant such an exile? Now, my dear friends, I don't know how helpful it is, but there is so much misunderstanding in Christian circles about Jewish life. So many Christians tend to think of Jews as horribly bound with the bondage of the law. You know, the kosher kitchen, Sabbath keeping, the festivals, and everything else is, we almost feel sorry for them. 
But I'm not so sure, frankly, that it has ever been the bondage that Christian people have imagined. It is perfectly true that the kashrut laws that we now observe are not the biblical kashrut laws of Leviticus, but are Talmudic laws that have been added to the Levitical law. But why? That is the point. I sometimes hear Christian people talking down that, oh, the Talmud, we want to get rid of the Talmud and all the rest of it. But my friends, if there had been no Talmud, there would be no Jewish people alive today. It has been due to the Talmud and to the rabbis interpretation of the law and in many ways addition to the law which has under the hand of God made the Jewish people absolutely separate from all other peoples and enabled them to endure to the day when God brought them back. When finally the real redemption of Israel begins, much of the Talmudic side may, as I imagine, may just fall away. Now let me explain this further so that everyone can understand what I'm trying to say. You see, when the rabbis began to think, they thought, what is it that has caused such an exile as this? The last exile was for 70 years. 70 years captivity, 50 years exile. What is it that could have caused 1,800 years of exile? Then they said it was transgression. Therefore they said we must fence the law. And we must put round the law a whole number of fences so that if a person breaks the outside fence, they actually never break the law. But they have a conscience about breaking the outside fence. Do you understand? Now you may think it ridiculous. And maybe you don't understand the Jewish mind in this way. But the point was, the rabbis were trying to preserve the Jewish people from ever again doing it. They never saw that the heart of the matter was to do with the person of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, because God had given a blindness, and it is a divinely given blindness and hardening, and God has done a very good job. Because it was a divinely given blindness and hardness, the Jewish people could only fall back on seeking somehow or other to put a fence right round and stop any more breaking on the law. So it's no longer the biblical Sabbath day's journey. It is now much smaller than that. It is no longer just a question of certain things that are prohibited. It is no mixture of milk and meat. And a whole number of other things are put under the embargo. It's no longer a question of the Sabbath beginning a few minutes before sunset. 
but generally speaking, two hours before sunset and two hours after the Sabbath has ended. You understand? The idea is that if anyone breaks anything, they will not come to the heart of the matter. Now, my dear friends, what's this all got to do with Jerusalem? Well, in many ways, it has quite a lot. For the rabbis also said certain other things. They said, for instance, that every Jewish wedding, the bride on the most happy and joyful day of her life was not to wear any jewelry of silver or gold. For on the happiest day of her life, she was to remember that our beloved Jerusalem and Zion had been taken away from us. Again, every time a Jewish house was built, now this is not rented, built, somewhere near the entrance a portion was to be left unfinished, so that every Jew that went in and out of that house and all the Gentiles should see uh, that there was something unfinished never to be completed, to remind everyone that Zion was desolate and Jerusalem was at present lost to the Jewish people. This is the way God burnt the whole question of Jerusalem into the hearts of the Jewish people. I sometimes think of the words of uh, um, the greatest Jewish poet of all, Yehudi, Yehuda Halevi of the 15th century from Spain, who wrote, and who shall grant me on the wings of eagles to rise and seek thee through the years until I mingle with thy dust, beloved, the waters of my tears. Shall I not to thy very stones be tender? Shall I not kiss them verily? Shall not thine earth upon my lips taste sweeter than honey unto me? If tradition is right, Yehuda Halevi was trampled to death outside Jaffa Gate as he knelt in prayer by a Turkish horseman. Those words of Halevi symbolize probably better than anything else the longing and desire of the Jewish people for Jerusalem. Now, my dear friends, where did this all begin? Where did this love story with Jerusalem begin? It began with the divine choice of Jerusalem. I don't think that if the Jewish people, knowing them as I do, had been left to themselves, they would have chosen Jerusalem. 
I think they were much more likely to have chosen Ashkelon or Yafo, Joppa or some other place. Maybe they could have taken Tyre or Sidon because it came within the biblical boundaries. Some city that would have had a port. Some city that had a navigable harbour. Some city that was a commercial crossroads or a commercial waterloo. A, a, a sort of terminal for land routes and a terminal for sea routes. That would have been the obvious capital, wouldn't it? And when you think that the great motorway or autobahn or autostrada or whatever you like to call it um, was coming from Egypt and is called by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, the way of the sea, the Via Maris began in Egypt, came right through the northern Sinai, came along by Ashgaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod to Yafo, then went up to the plain of Sharon, went through the Carmel Range, went right across the plain of Jezreel, right by Capernaum, and then turned north, went to Damascus. And from there you could either go northwards to Europe or eastwards to Babylon and Central Asia. That was the great major trade route of antiquity in this area. And the other wasn't quite as great, but was also very important. It started right down in the Yemen, came right up through Saudi Arabian Peninsula, came right the way through Aqaba, turned inland and went through Amman, and then up through Gilead and through uh, to Damascus and then north to Europe, eastwards to Babylon. These were the two great major trade routes. If the Jewish people had been left to themselves, I am quite sure they would have chosen some city that was on one or other of these trade routes. Only God, in his infinite wisdom, would have chosen Jerusalem. And he chose a city up in the Judean mountains that was on no trade route and was on no crossroads and had no river and therefore no harbor. <laughs> it had nothing. As I said on Wednesday, it didn't even have a proper water supply. The Gihon Spring was outside of the city wall and God chose her and said, this is the place where I have caused my name to dwell. And from then on, in the words of the psalmist, his foundation is in the mountains of Zion. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. I will make mention of those that are born in her. This one was born in her, and that one was born in her. When they come to take the register of the nations, they will say, this one and that one was born in her. And then the psalmist ends with an exultant cry, all my fresh springs are in thee. 
and there are no fresh springs within the city. So he saw something. In other words, he saw what God was getting at. There was no fresh springs in Jerusalem. Gihon was outside. So what he was saying was this. God has chosen this city without any of the natural assets or advantages of the normal capital city of, nation, of the nations of the world. That it might be a picture of his grace. It has to be preserved by him. He has to be its life, he has to be its power, he has to be its glory. It has no other. That's why the psalmist could cry at the end, and we tend to think of these Old Testament saints as benighted and half blind. My dear friends, I wish we had some of them in the church today. They'd stir us up. They saw a good deal more than these believers under the new covenant with all the wonderful indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. They seemed to be so blind. The psalmist says, all my fresh springs are in thee. In other words, Jerusalem stands for a life which is from above. The life of God over against the life of the flesh. The heavenly over against the earthly. The eternal over against the transient or time-bound. The incorruptible over against the corruptible. Jerusalem, not Babylon. Babylon was one of the most magnificent cities of the ancient world. Do you know that it took three days to cross Greater Babylon? It was so great. It had three great walls until you came to the inner city. It had some of the great, famous uh, scenes, or whatever you call them, of antiquity. The hanging gardens of Babylon. It had botanical gardens. It had zoological gardens. It had great, magnificent avenues and boulevards. Babylon was laid out as any really great human city ought to be laid out, like Paris, like Rome, even like Washington. Magnificent buildings, magnificent statuary, magnificent memorials. Magnificent squares and piazzas. It had great banking houses, a great post office, did you know that? A great stock exchange. And canals that came up hundreds of miles from the Persian Gulf and brought seafaring ships into the very heart of the city. The hanging gardens that went up that great, we would say, ancient skyscraper, if you know what I mean. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And not only that, but there were the great iron gates which everyone came to visit. My dear friends, if I had taken you on a trip to Babylon 
and I was your tourist guide, and I was taking you around, I think you would have been bowled over from wherever you came in the world of the day in which Babylon was the great empire. You would have been knocked out, speechless. Your mind would have been blown by what you saw. And as I took you round, suddenly as we come through a square, there is a kind of somewhat strange looking individual. He looks a bit like a shepherd that the Babylonians thought were the lowest of the low. And standing there in a somewhat foreign accent, a Hebrew accent, he calls out Babylon, Babylon. God says you shall be brought down and there shall be not left anything of you and pelicans shall come and the ostrich and Arabian shepherds, Arab shepherds shall graze their flocks upon you and you shall, they shall not even know that there was a Babylon. And you would have turned round to me and said, who is he? And I would have said to you, some nutcase. Don't listen to him. He's a Hebrew. He comes from some silly little city. Well, it's not a city. I mean, it's a little village up in the Judean uh, mountains called Jerusalem. It hasn't got any iron gates and it has no canals and it doesn't have any boulevards or avenues and it doesn't have a stock exchange and it doesn't have a post office and it doesn't have any banking houses. It doesn't have anything at all. And he has the cheek, you see how gracious we are. He has the cheek to stand in one of our squares and say that all this is going to disappear. I have said to my American friends, if I were to stand in Washington, that most beautiful city of the new world, and was to stand near the Washington Memorial and was to say, you see all this? It is all going to disappear. God is going to judge this whole thing and it will disappear so completely that the world will not even know that there was a Washington. They will say it was a myth, a legend, that it never existed. You would laugh at me. How could Washington disappear? so great, the capital of the superpower of the world. How could Washington disappear? But my friends, they all disappear. It's only Jerusalem that endures. Babylon disappeared so completely that for some centuries they thought it was like Atlantis, a legend. They believed that some people had cooked up the idea in their fevered imagination of this magnificent metropolis of the ancient world 
<clears throat> that if it had been anything, it was a little village. It was German archaeologists and others who began to uncover the remains of Babylon 150 years ago. And as they uncovered it, to their speechless amazement, they found a city so magnificent. Dear friends, there is not a human city that will not disappear. Washington's going to go, London's going to go, Paris is going to go, Rome is going to go, Bern is going to go, Copenhagen and Stockholm and Oslo and Peking and Tokyo, they're all going to go, for they are the human cities of a fallen world and order. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem is here to stay. And Jerusalem will never disappear till the king comes. And God has won the battle of the ages. When that day comes, there will be a new world and a new order. Dear friends, this love story of the Jewish people with Jerusalem began with a divine choice. Only God could have chosen Jerusalem. And he chose a city that had no commercial or natural advantages at all compared with other cities. Now, may I just say something that will possibly shock some um, uh, of you. I believe, to be perfectly honest, that if we had been left to ourselves, and I am so thankful that even uh, the Jewish people, we in our fallen state, have not been left to ourselves. The grace of God has been with us all through the last 1,800 years of our exile till our return. But if we had been left to ourselves, knowing as I do the mind of our people, I believe we would probably have chosen Tel Aviv as our capital. And the whole world would have been very happy for it. It was David Ben-Gurion who fought for Jerusalem. Of all the battles of the War of Independence, more lives were relatively lost in the battle to keep Jerusalem. than it. But David Ben-Gurion, with that God-given foresight, said, If we lose Jerusalem, we shall lose the destiny of the Jewish people. This man who was not really an observant Jew, who said he was an atheist and then in later life an agnostic, still said he believed in his Bible and made that magnificent statement, he is no realist who does not believe in miracles. It was David Ben-Gurion that the Spirit of God put into the heart, into the heart of, to fight for Jerusalem and not to let it go. I live near the front, what was the front line to 67. A little way from me is a building, pockmarked and scarred, called the Tanus building. If that one grotty building 
had fallen in the war of independence, the whole of West Jerusalem would have fallen. But it did not fall. Now, my dear friends, you've been very patient as usual with me. This long Jewish connection with Jerusalem is overlooked by most of the world. They would like to think the Jews had a connection with Jerusalem in the time of David some 3,000 years ago. And that they even had a connection with Jerusalem in the time of Jesus about 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> but they overlooked the fact that all the way through these 1,800 years there's been a connection with Jerusalem. I can actually give you the years, the only years in which as far as we know there were no Jews in Jerusalem. Now, that does not mean that there were not Jews in Jerusalem but they kept their identity very well hidden if they were here. But officially, there were no Jews in Jerusalem between the year 587 and 537 BC. That is 50 years. Then in the years after Christ, AD, from 135 to 362, a period of 227 years, there were no Jews. They were not permitted to enter the city. The city was called Ilea Capitolina. Hadrian built a heathen Roman city. From 370 to 438, period of 76 years under the Byzantines, no Jews. From 629 to 638, nine years. From 1099 for 200 years under the Crusaders, no Jews. And then the only other period there'd be no Jews, from 1948 to 1967 under the Jordanians when all Jews were expelled from the old city of Jerusalem, a period of 19 years. Now, if you look at that, it is extraordinary that over these last 2,500 years, there have been no more than about, about 500 years in which Jews have not been here, and that's scattered over a period. Except for the Crusader period, furthermore, Jerusalem has never been the capital of anything. In all those years, Jerusalem was ruled from Babylon or from Rome or uh, from Constantinople or from London or from Amman. Sometimes she was ruled in the Arab period from Baghdad, from Cairo, from Damascus. But Jerusalem was never the capital of anything except for the Crusader period, unless the Jews were here.
Dear folks, I believe that these facts need to be known by Christian people. It is a fallacy that people believe that the Jews have only become a majority in Jerusalem in the last 15 years. In fact, there has been a Jewish majority in Jerusalem since 1840. Now, let me just say something else about all of this. Jesus put it, as I said, on Wednesday, uh, on Monday at the Sultan's Pool. Jesus put it quite uh, simply. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In other words, what the Lord Jesus was saying is this. There is going to be a period in which Jerusalem is going to be trodden down underfoot by non-Jews. This has happened before. It is called the times of the Gentiles. It has happened a number of times in the history of the Jewish people. But there is going to be a period ahead of us in which Jerusalem is going to be trodden down underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles, those periods when the Gentiles have subjugated the Jewish people, are over and fulfilled. In other words, by inference, Jesus was saying, when Jerusalem comes back under Jewish sovereignty and Jewish control, you will know that the times of the Gentiles are over. Now, what does that mean? Because in the whole 1,800, 900 years up to recently, Never once has Jerusalem been taken by the Jewish people and come under Jewish sovereignty except for a few months in the rebellion of Bakokva. In that lightning move on the 7th, 6th and 7th of June, 1967, uh, the Israeli government, having, through the good services of Britain, warned King Hussein to stay out of the planned war of our neighbors that was going to be launched and which was going to result in a massacre worse than the massacres of Genghis Khan, in which the Mediterranean was going to run red with the blood of Jewish men, women, and children. The Israeli government to the good services of the British government warned King Hussein, stay out of this fight and we will not fire a shot at you. But King Hussein believed that he could gain something by joining in with Syria and Egypt. When they began uh, to fight, the Israel Defense Forces went into action 
encircled the old city of Jerusalem and in a lightning move bursting through the Lion's Gate. Some of you will know it as St. Stephen's Gate. And through Zion Gate, they met at the Western Wall. It was the paratroopers that first got there. Hardened, battle-weary men. They stood like children in front of those great massive stones of the Western Wall called in derision by Christians the Wailing Wall. They couldn't believe it. They could not believe it. They leant on the stones and wept like babies. They could not believe that the 2,000 years of prayer three times a day, the cry at the end of the two great festivals of the Jewish year, Passover and Yom Kippur next year in Jerusalem, had finally been fulfilled. It had happened. Jerusalem had come back to her own. It is a very striking fact that in 1917, on the 11th, I think it was, of December, 1917, an event took place in Jerusalem that had colossal historic significance. Not very far from here, near Newgate, on what we now call Paratroopers Hill. The cavalcade of British officers stopped. And the British officer, General Edmund Allenby, got off his horse. And amidst the jubilant crowds of Jews, Oriental Jews for the most part, he took off his hat took off his gloves, and walking through them down to Jaffa Gate, he said loudly so all could hear, I will not ride, hatted and gloved, into the city of my God and King. Walking through Jaffa Gate, he came to the little platform which is opposite Christ Church to this day, and there were all the Turkish officials and dignitaries of the city of Jerusalem waiting with the official surrender of Jerusalem. It was the first time in 400 years of Turkish Islamic rule and 700 years of Arab Islamic rule that Jerusalem had passed out of the hands of Islam. Do you know why those Jews who watched wept so much because by coincidence it happened to be the first day of the Jewish festival 
of Hanukkah. Now the Jewish festival of Hanukkah was the time which we sometimes call the festival of freedom or liberation. It was the festival in which God worked a great miracle through the Jewish Maccabees against the original Antichrist, Antiochus IV, who called himself the glory of God, Epiphanes. And everyone wondered, could it just be that the redemption of Israel has begun? Only a few weeks before there had been another historic declaration, the Balfour Declaration. Fifty years later, on the 7th of June, 1967, Jerusalem was reunited. Now those of you who are Bible students, do you know the significance of 50 years? Jubilee. Do you know the meaning of jubilee? All property and possessions return to their rightful owner. Is it coincidence or is it the hand of God? Dear friends, it seems to me that uh, something happened in the June War of 1967 which was a prophetic milestone. Just like there had been a previous prophetic milestone on the 14th of May 1948. By these prophetic milestones we know where we are in the economy of God. Now May I just say a few things before I close? You might wonder, why do we say so much about Jerusalem and why so much about its connection with the Jewish people? Because Jesus summed up the whole of world history by this word, the times of the Gentiles. As far as God is concerned, there has only been two kinds of history. Or peer, if you like, to divide the whole of human story. The times of Israel and the times of the Gentiles. If what I am saying is right, it means this. We have irrevocably, irreversibly passed into the last phase of world history. It may be a generation, it may be a century, it may even be two centuries. I doubt it. But we have passed irrevocably into the last phase of world history. And Jerusalem is the sign. The prophet Zechariah said that Jerusalem would become a cup of reeling unto all the nations round about. It would be a burdensome stone to all who burdened themselves with it. 
Who could have ever thought that Jerusalem a hundred years ago would be a burdensome stone to anybody? I would have thought it was a pebble. Who would have ever thought that it was a cup of reeling to anybody? It was more like a glass of sherbet. But today, nobody questions the fact that Jerusalem is poison to anybody who tries to meddle with it. Jerusalem is a stone so enormous, so heavy, that it will rupture any superpower or ideology that tries to put it somewhere where it does not belong. There are powers, superpowers, and ideologies in the world today, both Islamic and Marxist, as well as our friend, the United States. And um, not our friend, the Soviet Union. They would like to lift this stone called Jerusalem and put it in another place. It will rupture them. Thank God. It is the divine will and program that these arrogant, presumptuous powers not recognizing the Most High who rules in the affairs of men will try to contradict his purpose and his destiny for this city and will themselves be broken. How it will happen, I do not know, but we shall see another David and Goliath, I'm quite sure. Dear friends, sometimes people ask me, if we've passed out of the times of the Gentiles, what times are we in now? Have we returned to the times of Israel? I never know how to answer this question. And I always say I am not at all sure. This is how I describe it. The rabbis had, some of them, a name for the last period of world history. They called it the threshold of the Messiah. And I like that most of all. For didn't the Lord Jesus himself say, when you see these things begin to come to pass, know ye that he is nigh even at the door? He's not outside the city. He's not even outside the garden. He's not even just inside the gateway. He's at the door. He's on the threshold. You can hear his footsteps. You see, this city was the city that Jesus loved so much. You know, the Lord Jesus never put on a kind of theatrical act when he burst 
burst into tears. In the Greek, it is a very strong word that's used when he burst into tears. It was uncontrollable weeping. It was as if Jesus, with all his foreknowledge, his insight, his understanding, stood above the whole city laid out before him on the Mount of Olives and could see all the suffering and all the unhappiness, not only of that present time, but of the future. You know, there is a saying that most of you will have heard um, that when God uh, created the world, ten measures of suffering were sent by God upon the world, and nine of them fell upon Jerusalem. Jesus loved this city. He cried out one time, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stonest the prophets and killest those that are sent to her. How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But ye would not. Your house is left unto you desolate. You shall not see me henceforth. Why do some Christian people leave the statement? of Jesus there? As if the Lord Jesus turned his back on this city never again to have anything to do with it? That his love for this city was turned into anger? And antagonism? Jesus never finished there. He said, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. In modern Hebrew, when we want to say welcome, we say Baruch Haba. And if you want to be very religious, you will say Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Welcome in the name of the Lord. So the Lord Jesus said there was a day coming when something was going to happen to the Jewish people and their whole attitude to the Messiah was going to undergo a radical revolution and change. And they who had rejected him would say, Welcome in the name of the Lord. I have never been able to understand these people who tell me that God has no further time for the Jewish people or for Israel. Why? It is that Jesus returns to Jerusalem if Israel, as they say, is a political accident. Why does the Messiah return to the capital of a political accident? If he 
setting up a spiritual kingdom? Why does he return here? My friends, the destiny of the Lord Jesus and the destiny of Jerusalem are inextricably intertwined. This city is the city which he loved and he has never ceased to love it. With all its sin, with all its transgression, with all its wickedness, with all its faithlessness. Still he loves it. This is the city that those pierced feet will stand again within. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And the battle for Jerusalem and for Israel will be forever one. My dear friends, you might wonder why we so uh, emphatically say this city. We have to as believers, as Christians, all of you, you must make your voice heard wherever you are concerning the city. The battle now is on to take this city away, to internationalize it, or at least to compromise its status. We are going to see a battle over this city in the days that lie ahead. This city is going to be the occasion of war and more war. For the real issue in the Middle East is Jerusalem. Sometimes people say, why do you have to be so emphatic about this? Because this Jerusalem symbolizes the significance of the Jewish people, their calling and their destiny. Some years ago, I came upon a poem. It was written by a 15-year-old boy, a victim of the Holocaust. Born in Czechoslovakia, he wrote this poem when in the transit camp at Terzin. The last the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzlingly yellow. Perhaps if the sun's tears would sing against a white stone. Such, such a yellow is carried lightly way up high. It went away, I'm sure, because it wished to kiss the world. Goodbye. For seven weeks I've lived in here, penned up inside this ghetto. But I have found my people here. The dandelions call to me, and the white chestnut.
candles in the court only I never saw another butterfly the butterfly was the last one butterflies don't live in here in the ghetto this Jerusalem is to ensure that there will be plenty of butterflies for Jewish children. Dear friends, we are in a battle, but this battle has already been won. There will be, I am afraid, Thank you, sister. I believe that there will be much more Jewish blood shed and much more Jewish suffering before the final battle is won. But I have absolutely no doubt that God has already won this battle. And I believe that it's not presumption on our part, on our part, to say. It's not that God is on our side, but we are on God's. Dear friends, I do pray that God will make every one of you an intercessor. For in the end, uh, the command of the word, above and beyond everything else, is pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I do not know what will have happened to the large number of our people who have died without knowing Christ. I only know that God will fulfill his word. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Somewhere in some mysterious way, the finished work of the Lord Jesus underlies the whole of Jewish history. And I don't understand it. I only know that in Romans, the New Testament, in chapter 11 and verse 26, I think it is, it says that it may be fulfilled as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, in Isaiah 59 and verse 19, it reads differently. It reads, And the Redeemer shall come unto Zion and to those that turn away from ungodliness in Jacob. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came to Zion. He came to Zion as the Redeemer and he saved those that turned away from ungodliness in Jacob. The whole early church was Jewish, that great Jewish remnant that believed and became the basis and foundation for this whole great work that's gone to the ends of the earth and been so successful that the vast majority of Christians don't even know of their Jewish roots. 
But my friends, when the apostle came to quote this, he quoted it in the Septuagint. And it has this significant change, which I believe is absolutely of God. Instead of saying, according as it is written, a Redeemer shall come unto Zion. And to those that turn from ungodliness in Jacob, he wrote this, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. Dear friends, the Jewish people have suffered so terribly at the hands of the Christian church. There is no way for the average Jew to take a kindly view of the gospel or of evangelism, of the work of the cross, even sometimes of the person and name of Jesus. After all, they've been butchered in that name, tortured in that name, buried alive in that name. Their children have been taken away from them and put in convents and monasteries, given other names and brought up as Christians in that name of Jesus. There's only one way that it can ever happen. The Deliverer will have to come out of Zion and himself turn away ungodliness in Jacob.